Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On Commons People this week, are lockdowns working? What we want people to do is to uh, behave fearlessly but with common sense. Is constructive opposition over? Mr Speaker, for the Prime Minister's benefit, let me take this slowly for him. And should Keir Starmer worry about the left? And from my perspective, they were they were just unsupportable. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Rachel Wearmouth is here. Hello. Hi Rachel and we're delighted to be joined by the Labour former Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell. Hi Arj, nice to see you. Hi John, nice to see you. Well, more bad news on coronavirus this week as Boris Johnson contemplates further lockdown measures with case numbers continuing to rise sharply. The Prime Minister is, however, facing fury from Northern leaders amid reports that he is set to close pubs and restaurants in locally locked down areas in the hope that the worst of the spread can be contained there. Tory backbenchers, meanwhile, are up in arms and are threatening to throw out the 10pm curfew in a Commons vote next week. The Chancellor Rishi Sunak is, meanwhile, starting to face questions about whether he truly understands what the restrictions are doing to certain sectors, like the cultural industries. And Labour appears to be moving away from its approach of constructive opposition. Let's hear Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, for the Prime Minister's benefit, let me take this slowly for him. We we, we, We support measures to protect health. We want track and trace to work. But the government is messing it up, and it's our duty to point it out. Let's get back to the questions, because these are not trick questions. I've got the figures here, Prime Minister. In Bury, when restrictions were introduced, the infection rate was around 20 per 100,000. Today, it's 266. In Burnley, it was 21 per 100,000 when restrictions were introduced. Now, it's 434. In Bolton, it was 18 per 100,000. Now it's 255. The Prime Minister really needs to understand that local communities are angry and frustrated. So will he level with the people of Berry, Burnley and Bolton and tell them what does he actually think the problem is here? Uh, Paul, it's not going very well, is it? Well, it's certainly not for the government um, and not for the country. I mean, I think, and that's the key thing, isn't it? Which is how well is the country coping now? And any opposition has to really channel any kind of public anger over incompetence over this, something as huge as this. Because as we've discussed before, this isn't like any normal policy or political issue. This is something that affects every single person's life. It's not like health in the in the traditional sense where health spending is going up or down or individual hospitals have got a problem um, or even education where there might be a blunder about a levels that might affect a sector of the population this every single person in the uk is affected by this and that's why i thought it was interesting that starmer had a much more robust line at pmqs it was interesting that he really went for it a bit more and um i think the most important thing is just channeling that public unease about what the hell is going on. And Johnson, in his answers, although he was performing a bit better in the theatrical sense, he didn't really have any answers. And I thought that it's the most unanswerable question of all, it seems right now, which is why aren't the lockdown measures working in the north and northwest and northeast? And the PM has no answer for that. And I think it's a real problem because the one answer he might have is to blame the public. And as we all know, politically, that's just disastrous. We had um, the health minister, Lord Bethel, blaming the public this week for, for spreading the disease through birthday parties. And any, he's an unelected peer. He can get away with it. But if you're, if you're an elected politician, somehow blaming the public is a no-no. So I don't really know what Johnson's answer is going to be. When you add on top of that, the, the sort of serial incompetence on test and trace, uh, which we've seen some new figures today on it getting even worse, then 
the government are in a really, really difficult spot. Um, John, we've just found out, Keir Starmer has just said that Labour aren't going to vote against the 10pm curfew next week um, because he doesn't want to want there to be no restrictions at all, but he'd rather the government reformed it. Do you think that's the right approach? And, and is it time for Labour to maybe set out more of an alternative plan rather than supporting the government's uh, restrictions? The vote, on, the vote on the 10pm issue is not the critical one. The issue is, is there, is there an overall strategic approach that actually is going to work? And I, I think he has pursued exactly the right. In fact, it's the line that before I stood down as Shadow Chancellor, I was pursuing as well, where you engage with the government and when a national crisis like this, you, know, you can't have political knockabout. You've got to engage and you've got to work together to try and tackle it. You know, people aren't, they don't want to hear a political argument when people are dying and they're suffering like this. So you try and work with them, but there does, you give them as much support as you can, but then there does come a time when you think actually they're not behaving in a way a government should, or they're not being effective, or they're not being open, or they're not being, in, you know, they're not really bringing people in and engaging with them. So I think there does come a time when people will say, you've got to reflect what people in the communities are feeling. And, and I think that's what Keir is rightfully doing. He's moved to that stage now where he's saying to Johnson and Hancock, look, we've done, we've given you all the support we possibly can, but this isn't working and it hasn't been working for quite a while now. And part of it is because there isn't a clear enough strategy. And part of it is actually, I think as well, there's a suspicion, not only are they not engaging, they're not being completely straight, you know, not identifying the problems early enough. Like on the test and trace, sometimes, you know, you have to go to government, you have to go into parliament and say, actually, it isn't working. We're, we're working, trying to sort out why it's not working, and we'll try and keep you informed and we'll involve it. It would have been better that than keep on boasting about the figures that then prove within hours to be completely inaccurate. So I can see where Keir's got to. He's, I think like a lot of people um, within our communities, he's pretty fed up that we've done everything to support the government and they haven't really delivered and they've not been straight with us. So I don't think the 10, P, the 10 p.m. vote is not the issue for me. Um, the issue is there a proper strategy, and I'm, I'm maybe unpopular at this, but I'm quite a hardliner on this. I actually do believe we need a proper lockdown. Um, I'm really worried. I've, you can only, you can only really, um, you can only reflect what you think is happening on the ground and what you know about. I'm my constituency. It's next door to Boris's, Boris Johnson's constituency. Our figures are going through the roof at the moment. Now, these lockdowns are occurring elsewhere around the country, but the Hillingdon figures are actually worse. And we've got real, we've still got problems. This is why I get quite angry about it. We've still got problems in our care homes about supply of tests. We went through a nightmare situation where we were being reassured by um, Hancock, the Secretary of State for Health, that the PPE was being delivered, and it wasn't. We were, you know, we, it just wasn't. I had. I was having to deal directly with individual care homes in my constituency to try and resolve it. Then we were told, if you remember, the care homes could allow relatives to visit as long as the staff were tested weekly and the residents tested regularly as well. We couldn't get the tests. I had care home managers on the phone to me in desperation. Can you phone? Can you try and get us the test kits and things like that? And yet at the same time, we were being told everything was okay. So. You reach the end of the line in terms of giving as much support as you can for them, putting party politics or putting all politics to one side. But when it gets to the point where they're just they're so, well, it is a bit, it is incompetence actually. You know, if you're a minister, your job is to actually hold the people you're responsible for to account, ask the right questions, and then if you get if there's something going wrong um, as a result, and there's a whole range of reasons why it can go wrong. Uh, and people understand that it's best to be straight and honest, come to Parliament and say it and say this is how we're going to sort it out and engage people with it. That hasn't happened. So I think Keir's reached the end of his rope and I don't blame him. Yeah, so just, just before coming to you, Rachel, um, do you think there should be another national lockdown, John, until we get cases under control? I'm, yeah, my, I'm, as I say, I'm, I know this is unpopular, but I'm quite a hardliner. I think we need, we need that break. We need that break because I don't, can't see how else we're going to manage this um the test how, and how trace, long, I was just gonna say how long for and like what what do you think the case well, the, to the, the government we're talking about you know that two week 
break, um, contact breaker that they, they were talking about. I want to see a break based upon the ability to deliver an effective test and trace system. Because unless we get that up and running, and if that takes a couple of weeks, let's do it. But until we, unless we get that up and running, I don't know how we can manage this situation. Yeah, you think Scotland's got it right then, John, in that sense. Nicola Sturgeon's acted quickly with a nice break to at least try and build some capacity in it. I think that I think the way that she's approached it is the route I would go down. I might be a bit more severe in some cases. In addition, she's had the problems on test and trace up there and has had to accept that, you know, had to admit to that as well, and particularly in the care home problems that they had up there. I think there was an element with, with Nicholas Sturgeon in the same way with Johnston about not taking it seriously enough, quickly enough. But now I think they're, they're, catching, they're catching up. But I, yeah, I'm a, I am, I know it's unpopular, but actually, you know, I, someone put it to me the other day about, you know, well, this will have the economic effects and people will lose their jobs and the companies being hit and that will have health, health effects. Look, you can, you can revive the economy you can revive the economy over time. You can't resurrect the dead. And that's what I'm worried about, that we go back. And if you look at London at the moment, I'm a London MP, look at London at the moment. We met with the Director of Public Health last week. Our figures, both in terms of the cases and also the deaths and the admissions to hospital are going through again. And I'm really worried that we face the nightmare situation that we were worried about four months ago that we're now going to the normal flu pandemic situation and that the coronavirus spike happens at the same time. In that way, the NHS could be severely stretched. I don't think it'll be overflowed. I don't think, I think the staff will always rise to the challenge, but I think we, go, we put them under stress again as a result of that timing factor. So that's why I'm a bit hardline on this. And by hard line, John, do you reckon sort of a ban on mix and households mixing and, um, and yes, maybe... I'm afraid so. And, uh, yeah. and maybe some closure of pubs and restaurants, that yes, right? Or, yeah. I, yeah, I would go back to quite a severe lockdown for a couple of weeks at least and then test it, see where we're at. It gives Full the work from home. Afraid so, yeah. Um, and I know that's tough. I mean, in my constituency, uh, working class community, uh, housing is poor in many of the areas and it's been really tough for people because of overcrowding, those sorts of... All those social issues are coming to the fore and also, you know, we've had 10 years of austerity, which has not helped us in terms of tackling some of these social problems. And John, do you think it'd help in a sense, uh, do you think it'd help in a sense of national unity as well, so that everyone's got the same lockdown rules? So people in the North, I mean, my family in the Northwest are, are suffering. Maybe it'd be better if everyone had the simpler message that everyone's in the same boat. My daughters, Paul, as you know, are up North. They're in Pendle. My, my, my eldest daughter's a teacher in Burnley. Uh, my cousin's in Liverpool. Um, I just think there's a clarity, that's the first thing, an absolute clarity about what the rules are wherever you are, that's quite important. And at the moment it's quite complicated knowing what the actual rules are. I think there's an absolute clarity. But also the reason for national lockdowns is because we're an extremely mobile population. And we've seen that with the students, haven't we? So I, I can't see any other route through to have some form of quite severe lockdown for a limited period whilst we get test and trace up and running effectively and in that way I think we'll preserve lives and actually on the economic arguments I think if you hit this virus hard enough and for a reasonable period actually economically you're more likely to come out in a better circumstance than if you trail on and we have hits and closures every now and again. So I think the economic arguments are for a, a severe, harder lockdown so that we get on top of it uh, 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 also militate towards, a, uh, I think, a more hardline approach. Is, the worst thing we... that's happening at the moment is this inconsistency of approach where businesses are opening up and then they're told to close again. You just can't plan and you destroy confidence in the sector for the longer term as well. And is it your is it your argument that while there's any leeway in the rules, that people are just going to break them anyway? I think people are totally confused. I don't think there's even people breaking them. I think half the time you don't, people are not completely sure whether it's what's right and what's wrong. It's very difficult to enforce. Then then that causes conflict because people have their own interpretations. I'd rather we had absolute simplicity. I'd rather we had a, a, a 
a more serious approach for a limited period of time so that we got on top of this again. But my big worry now, as I say, as we go into the winter months now, you know, the normal flu pandemic starts, the normal flu, uh, you know, the, the doctors now are, are phoning around, our surgeries are inviting us in for the, the injections and all that sort of thing, so we can try and protect ourselves as much as we possibly can. But no matter what happens, we normally have a bad flu season. And we all, you know, in the last, in recent years, just to, you know, remember, um, we've had, we've had NHS crises every winter as a result of flu, leave aside the pandemic, you combine the two. And I think we're, things are looking pretty difficult, let's put it that way. I sound like a prophet of doom, but I think it is pretty, <laughs> it is pretty grim, you know, it's pretty grim if we don't get on top of this. And I don't want to be in this situation in six or nine months time, Well, I know we're all hoping for the vac the vaccine to come along and obviously we've got to play for time to enable that to happen. Um, but I just, I just think you know, we need to be a bit more decisive and assertive in cracking this because otherwise um, I think people's lives will be put at risk on quite a scale again. And do you think Keir should start calling for a national lockdown, John? Well, I think he'll, he'll make his call on all of this when he sees what Johnson, Boris Johnson is going to come up with next week. Um, as I say, the vote on the 10pm thing is it's not the issue. The issue is, have we got a strategy? Uh, and I yeah, think that's what Keir has been saying for quite a while. He's given, he's given the government as much leeway as he possibly can. He's been, give, give Keir his due, he's been incredibly patient. Uh, and he's not jumped on bandwagons or anything like that. He's not, you know, I know he's had some criticism about why hasn't he been more uh, critical of the government. But actually, I think he's given the government uh, as much support as he can. But now it's the end of, you know, we're at the end of the road for that, really. And we can't, you can't have a situation where, in such a crisis, the Prime Minister turns up at Prime Minister's question time and just lusters rather than answers clarity, with clarity. It's too severe a situation that we're in for that sort of... That's a combination of political manoeuvring and, and absolute bluster. Yeah. Um, turning to the economy, uh, Rachel, uh, Rishi Sunak landed himself in hot water this week by simply hinting that musicians could retrain if they can't work due to their sector being shut down. Um, the Treasury got very, very touchy about this. Why do you think that was? Yeah, I mean, I could, I could partly see their point because um, the Chancellor was being asked generally about um, what should happen with the cultural secretary, uh, the cult the culture sector, um, what, you know, individual musicians and artists should yeah, do. Dowden's not getting the sack, is he? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, carry on. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and, 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 then, and then he kind of tried to put it back to, you know, speaking more generally, we're all going to have to adapt. And then that was kind of, people read that as he was telling musicians to retrain. Um, so you could see why they were trying to sort of push back on that to some extent. Um, but he's got big problems in this area. It's kind of one of the worst affected sectors of the economy, the cultural sector. You know, people can't go to theatres. Um, there's a big group of people who work in this sector who are among the excluded. So they're like self-employed. So he's going to, the Treasury would say it's a really complex problem as to how to try to help these people. But it's kind of interesting in that he in that Rishi Sunak really does not want to be a divisive figure at all. He's really tried to stay out of all of the culture wars kind of debates. You know, he's kind of doesn't want to start arguments with people like Liam Gallagher, for example, you know, because he does not want to become the kind of, you know, hated figure that, you know, George Osborne was, for example, to some people. And I think that very much speaks to his, you know, future ambitions, really. And that they're very desperate to control the message around unemployment as well. But, you know, ahead of it getting as we all expected to be really bad in the months ahead. John you're obviously shadow chancellor what do you make of the current chancellor's performance and would you have done anything differently? I've struggled with Sunak I really have I've tried to I took the same approach if you remember I I had the budget before we left I did a speech before the budget where we set out our proposals for furlough schemes um, and what I found, I tried to, you know, I tried to work with him and perfectly friendly. Um, but what I found was, is um, I don't think he grasped the scale of the problem from the beginning. In the same way that Johnson never really understood the scale of the health risk, I don't think Sunak really understood the scale of the problem. 
he adopted quite a few of the things that we put to him, which was great. But when he announced um, his first major scheme on that, I can remember the Friday, he announced it at half five and I did an interview at half six. And I was, I said, I welcome all of this because actually it was the furlough, the, the, it was modeled on the furlough scheme we put to him. Um, the Danish model didn't go as far as what we wanted, but at least it went some far. But I said then, and I was critical that he'd failed to do anything about the self-employed, and there were huge gaps. He announced that at half five. I said that at half six. And I had a tsunami of criticism attacking me. Um, you know, you were dividing the country. You, it was almost, you know, it was you know, this attack on almost not being patriotically supporting the Chancellor in, this, in his hour of need. I said, actually... I've welcomed it, but there are huge gaps here. And then what's happened is it's been like drawing teeth. For a period before I then stood down, I was meeting with cabinet office and treasury officials, and we were trying to go through where we thought all those gaps were. The self-employed of freelancers and the others were those. There was those people, if you remember, had given up one job and taken up another, but the date, the timing meant they'd been excluded from support as well. Um, I actually raised as well, by the way, and I put parliamentary questions down in July about this in the end, about the potential of fraud on the bounce back scheme. I put down, I think, about 20 questions on that and got all these assurances that due diligence was taking place. Well, we now know that's not true. So I was trying to say, you, there's a whole series of gaps here you've got to address. And slowly but surely started addressing those, but it was like drawing teeth and there were still gaps towards the end. And we also said on the furlough scheme, what you should do is review it, of course, but you have to do, you have to take into account the impact of withdrawing it. And as an aside as well, can I also say the sexual approach never really got into his head either. The unions and I were saying there's sectoral approaches that you have to take because different sectors of the economy will perform differently in this pact. I raised with him the aviation sector. Well, I've got a constituent interest with Heathrow here. And I said, and the aviation sector, actually the best people to listen to, I know you'd expect me to say this, but it is the trade unions, because actually the companies will, it'll be Darwinian, the companies will compete against each other to knock each other out. The unions will want to actually see an overall strategy that keeps as many jobs as possible. He never seemed to understand that. I, I just, I don't understand why he hasn't brought forward a sectoral approach. On the cultural sector, I just thought again that I thought we'd had a bit of a breakthrough and we'd convinced him about the support. And then when you looked at the level of support, one, it was too small, and two, it was so late, so late in coming. So I know I'm I know the media have built him up as you know ex extremely impressive, etc. Um, and I'm and it's difficult being a, the, the chancellor in a crisis like this, of course it is. But actually, I'm extremely disappointed. I think some of the things were pretty obvious, and he hasn't dealt with. And I don't think he's caught, I don't think he's kept on touch with the reality of what's going on the ground. And I also, I did say, <laughs> I did say, and again, I got a bit of a stick for this as well. On the eat out to help out, I did say eat out to help out, spread out, and that's what it's done, I'm afraid. And so there's been a whole range of issues like that. That sounded great at the time but afterwards you think oh, you know this was ineffectual or too risky that's sort of so no i'm not impressed i'm afraid i know you'd expect me to say that as a former shadow chancellor but actually sometimes you know when someone's on on top of their game and i don't think he is on this one and i'm as i say the lack of having a sectoral approach in different areas is quite remarkable because that's quite basic and it's not just me saying that it's across the piece and not just the trade unions, it's employers as well. He obviously, he obviously wants to be Conservative Party leader. You know, his ambition, oh, yeah, yeah. I, his ambition well, seems to be clear. What do you think his biggest weaknesses? Well, I've said to, I've said to um, the Labour Party, I've said to Keir and his, his team, really, the reality is this, is that um, it, the election might seem a long way off, but it isn't, you know. The election three or four years time you know you've got 18 months at most to consolidate the position your own vision of what you want to do and you're going to govern what your policies are because within eight the following 18 months you're in a general election campaign that's the reality of it so this period you've got to make sure that first of all of course you you you, you undertake a critique of the your opponent and at the moment the critique of 
you can see what the critique of Boris Johnson is and the way they're approaching that. But the Tories are ruthless in a way the Labour Party aren't. The Tories, the, the men and women in grey suits will turn up and get rid of a Tory leader uh, and replace them if they think they're going to, they're a risk to the election, their, their electability. So Johnson, I think, is stands a 50-50 chance of being eliminated before the next election. And obviously Sunak at the moment is the obvious replacement. So my advice for the Labour Party is actually you need to take them both out politically. You've got to take on Johnson, but you've got to take on Sunak as well. And I actually think despite what the media, greatest respect to yourselves, the, the easy ride that they've given Sunak, um, and it's, you know, it's an easy ride when you're giving out money as well, especially on this scale, the easy ride that he's been given um, still means that actually um, you've got to open up a, a genuine critique of one, his performance and two, his abilities and three, the prospect of the future. And there are things like, um, there are things that are coming up that sort of betray that prospect. And I give you one example of this next fortnight. Yeah. If Sunak dares not to implement the low pay commission's recommendations on the rise in the minimum wage, I think he opens up a huge front to in which to take him apart about how just, you know, don't give us this bull about levelling up. Don't give us this co new Tory commitment to equality all of a sudden. If they don't raise that minimum wage to the low pay commission recommendation, I think there's a real vulnerability. Uh, and there's issues like that that will come up time and time. I mean, the, the withdrawal of the £20 on universal credit, absolutely scandalous. Resolution Foundation report, you know, the Resolution Foundation is not exactly a revolutionary organisation, is it? You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's chaired by a Conservative Lord, and they brought forward a report which just basically says, you know, some of the lowest paid, poorest people within our society will lose £1,000. And you'll push them over the edge in a positive. There's issues like that that betray the Sunak image. I was just going to say, your successor, Annalise Dodd, you obviously she used to work in your team. Do you, do you, from a little bit of what you said there, you think maybe she's not doing enough to. No, to I think she's doing well. If you look at what Annalise has done, very difficult when the Shadow Chancellor has against the leader of the party. When you're in a new administration, you have to, you know, it's always tough in that. And also in a, in a, Exactly the same as Keir, what Annalise has had to do, quite rightfully, is give her support for the government as much as she possibly can, so she's not playing party politics, things like that, but then also develop a, a critique if you think they're not doing the right, the right things and if you think they're failing the community and the country overall. And that's what she's been doing. And actually, what I was pleased at, she's doing it quite systematically. Uh, and Annalise was in my team and she's extremely bright. She's incredibly analytical. Uh, and anything that she says or whatever stacks up. She's researched well. And that's what she's doing now, I think. Chip, 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 chipping away at Sunak on the basis of his failure of his policies without being aggressive in any way, but trying to be supportive where he thinks she's done right. But also, I think, chipping away at the just basic level of competence. Uh, speaking of Labour, while Keir Starmer mulls over Labour's coronavirus strategy, there have been growing signs of dissent at his leadership. This week, Len McCluskey's Unite Trade Union voted to slash its funding of the party by 10%, a move which is likely to cost around £150,000 a year. And meanwhile, Starmer's desire to appear tough on security in the hope of winning back Red Wall voters is causing some consternation on Labour's backbenches. Led by Jeremy Corbyn and yourself, John, a total of 20 MPs rebelled against the leader this week to vote against government legislation which confirms MI5's right to let informants commit crimes in pursuit of intelligence. But let's uh, just hear Ben Bradshaw's assessment of Unite's decision to pull funding. And fewer people have done more to keep the Tories in power for the last 10 years than Len McCluskey. Look, I don't think this will bother Keir Starmer one bit. In fact, I think he'll probably welcome a bit of distance uh, from the man who's done our movement so much uh, damage and decisions one for unite, but Keir's priorities are the priorities of the country, and uh, he's not going to be too tr troubled by this. He, he may not be. Uh, Paul uh, Bradshaw said Keir Starmer wouldn't be worried about unite. Is he correct? And is and should he be? Well, obviously, you know, you don't want one of the biggest trade unions in the country uh, not on your side. Um, Starmer's people point out that actually in the leadership race, 
um, he won a majority of Unite members because he had to, because he was so far ahead in the affiliate section that actually, and Unite has dominates that section so much, the logical conclusion was that he won Unite. Um, now that's, that Starmer's people say that's often forgotten and that Becky Long Bailey actually came a poor third amongst all affiliates and trade unions. So that, that's a bit of the background about the, the Starmer leadership team. That's, they're, they're quite robust about um, how much support they think they've got within trade unions as a whole, but also within Unite amongst ordinary members. Um, but I think from Unite's point of view, um, it's a tricky thing because um, you've got a general secretary who's, who's due to leave at some point in 2022. So there's a, a, a jockeying going on to succeed him at the moment. Um, there's a chap called um, uh, uh, um, uh, Howard Beckett who's up for it. But, um, but also, the, um, I think one, one of the things is that, and the suspicion is that he's trying to push uh, Len to be more left wing. And there's another chap called Steve Turner, who everyone who's been a long standing member of Unite, who's seen as the real favourite to succeed Len McCluskey. Who, and he is slightly worried about some of this stuff. I think he's, he's worried that actually, and people around him are worried that you, if Unite reduces the number of affiliates it's got to the Labour Party, it reduces its influence. Uh, and you can cut money. That's one thing. But if you reduce the number of affiliates, as John knows, that means you reduce your your, your strengths at, at party conference uh, and your strengths overall in, in dealing with the Labour Party. So there's some people on the left, not on the right of Unite, but on the left of Unite, who are worried that this is a gesture too far. And I think that... Um, I th that's the difficult issue that's going to play itself out within the union um, over the next few months. I mean, yeah, it's a shot across Starmer's bows to say, look, if you go too far, then we'll pull money. The Baker's Union as, as well was, was apparently considering it last night. So it might work in that sense. And you might say, actually, by Starmer doing more constructive or less constructive opposition, more genuine opposing, that actually... Um, he's doing what people like Len McCluskey want. In other words, he's he's being more robust with the government and he's saying, look, there is a Labour alternative. So maybe it was a shot across the bows that is working. But as far as Unite's concerned, as I say, there's a concern within the union that they might be shooting themselves in the foot. John, what's your take on the situation? You're always going to have a situation um, with the affiliated bodies that there'll be differences of view on different issues. Um, and... The, the best way of resolving it is you pick up the third and get, get that meeting sorted, and I think that's what will happen here. I'm, uh, I'm not sure what the discussion on the Unite exec was, but I think Paul's right. There's a whole range of views from what I understand about, obviously there's some concerns about um, is Kia moving away from the commitments in the last two manifestos? There's some anxieties about that that have been expressed. I can't see it because he stood on the platform of those 10 point plan drawn from those manifestos. Um, the other issue that came up, Paul, was the issue around the paying of the legal, um, legal, uh, the legal challenges to the ex staff as well. Why was that done against from what I understood with the legal advice that was given to the Labour Party? And I think that was one of the, the issues. I think so. There has been some elements as well raising, you know, his care needs to be a bit more aggressive in terms of his opposition to Johnson. They're not fundamental issues. They're not, you know, they're not split issues or anything like that. There's nothing fundamental there that can't be resolved with a conversation. And I think that I think that's that all will resolve. But you'll get that in individual unions at different times anyway. And we've always had that. Um, and and John, on, you mentioned um, Keir stood on those ten pledges, which you know yeah. replicated a lot of the manifestos from 2017 and 2019. I asked him last week. I said, "Do you still stand by the the top five percent increasing income tax, which was your policy for two elections?" Mm. Uh, and he said, "Yes, that's my priority. It remains my priority." Do you think you'd like him to go a bit further than saying it's his priority into saying actually? It's a firm pledge. Uh, we we obviously we wait till twenty twenty four. I wouldn't expect. I wouldn't expect. No, I wouldn't expect him to say anything else at the moment. My view on all of this, I keep saying it, is that the last two manifestos were great, but actually they must. But we need to be much more radical than those two, given the circumstances we're in. And I think that's where Anne Lease is coming from as well. If you remember, um, for me, Anne Lease led on a lot of the issues around tax evasion, tax avoidance, because that's what she specialised in when she was an MEP as well. 
And I think, like, um, she was one of the advocates of the Maginsky Clause and all the re Magnitsky Clause. In terms of the issues around um, taxation, uh, it's concentrated on the top 5%. There's other issues like the financial transaction tax that we've got to hone down as well. So there'll be a lot more. I want to go further. We included in the last manifesto, the last two manifestos, I think, um, that would explore land value taxation. I'm interested in where we go from here on in on land value taxation, because if you are going to be a government that invests large amounts of public money, particularly in infrastructure, and even Johnson is the sort of investment in infrastructure, we want to ensure that the benefits of that investment is captured by the whole community, not just individual speculators or developers. So I think that's one of the routes that we can go down. And I'll opening up that debate in some of the work that we're doing at the moment in terms of discussions, et cetera, on the, on the left of the party. So no, I think he's, he's reaffirmed his commitment on, on those points. Um, and in many ways that I'm hoping that'll assuage some of the concerns that people have had. But I, we need to be more radical now, given the circumstances that we're in. And I think there's the mood in the country that actually recognises that as well. He did actually say to me that he, he could even have an even bolder tax policy. That was the phrase he used. Um, do you think, John, that might include something like something you've talked about in, in the last few months, which is this idea of a wealth tax on assets, not income? We've got to do something about assets. That's why I think land value taxation might well be the way through that. It might be much more effective. And if you look at the work that's been done over the years, it's interesting how many organisations now are settling to that. I can remember having I can remember having a discussion with the Federation of Small Businesses. Would you believe because they saw that actually we needed some different things because a lot of their businesses were the shop fronts on the high street, whilst the new tech companies are not located there and they're elsewhere and get away with paying so little. I think also, again, and Kieran and his team, I don't think are averse to any of this, that on that issue around fairness of taxation, around wealth and assets and business taxation as well, there's such, there's such, I suppose, inequalities. I take Amazon, for example, you know, figures, the last figures I saw, 14 billion pounds worth of sales in this country and they pay what 260 million pounds worth of tax it's just outrageous so i think they're open to looking at a much fairer taxation system which would look at a fairer taxation of assets and wealth and making sure that actually businesses are better and more fairly treated as against the big tech companies that are to be frank i think ripping us off um Rachel, just to just to talk about the other thing that we were just discussing there, which was the uh, rebellion on the MI five legislation. Um, was that significant? And and will Keir's sort of tough on security strategy actually work in terms of winning back the red wall, or is it unwise to get in a bidding war with the Tories? Um, I think it, no. Um, Keir Starmer seems to know this is an area that's really really difficult for him, and he's sort of taking cautious steps forward. But um, this was kind of like a a kind of nightmare scenario for um, for, for for Labour at the moment. Um, the MI5 has previously had a policy of allowing informants to pass, participate in crime where the information gathered was proportionate to the to the evidence gained. Um, so there, if this came up because there was a legal ruling recently, which kind of just narrowly ruled that it was that this policy was legal. Um, but the the problem that Keir Starmer, who who brings up his his record on standing up for human rights all the time um, was that human rights groups really had a problem with this legislation and that they thought it didn't specifically rule out some of the more serious crimes like murder um, torture or sexual violence um, and he ended up having a, he the Labour's position I should say was was to abstain but he ended up having a group of about 20 MPs including Sean um, voting against it and yeah I think he really it was difficult for the party not to take a position at all, I think. Um, so I don't know, it'd be interesting to hear what John has to say about this, actually. Well, there were two pieces of legislation. One was the Overseas Operations Bill, and the other was the Covert Operations Bill. And from my perspective, they were, they were just unsupportable. They just were. And for me, I, my, uh, my advice to them was actually these are matters of conscience to a certain extent. And anything that involves the potential of determining life and death like this, 
I think, is a matter of conscience. And I would rather there was no whip whatsoever across the whole house and we voted on a matter of conscience on this. Um, I, what the timing, I find the timing of the bills is extremely suspicious. Uh, and I think it is, to a certain extent, I think it is Boris Johnson and Cummings and others playing politics with this, um, trying to, you know, Keir quite rightfully has, uh, in his um, conference speech, made it clear about, you know, his own personal patriotism and, and what the party stands for in that respect. And I, I wonder, I just speculate whether or not these bills were brought forward with a view to trying undermine some element of that. And uh, so I, if it is a grubby political exercise like that by the Tories, I think it's absolutely despicable. The bills for me were not supportable. And in some ways you have to come at this at your own personal experience. On the, um, on the overseas operations bill, um, some of you may remember or may not, but some years ago, one of my constituents was a doctor volunteering in Pakistan and got picked up by the Pakistani authorities and was held for six weeks, beaten up on a, on a regular basis. Then at the end of every session, he was beaten up. He was then interrogated by a couple of people with posh English accents, we thought were MI6. Um, and again, under the covert operations, the, the overseas operations bill, I doubt if my constituent would get anywhere near justice whatsoever. In fact, he still hasn't. He's still, his family is still fearful of the risk that they stand. In terms of the covert operations bill, the other experience I've had is I, I set up the blacklisted workers support group. And the spy cops infiltrated the different groups of that to surveil. But the other one I had is a case called Ricky Real, which is a young Asian lad who went missing after a violent racist attack and found up, we found him dead in the Thames. And the police had to come and see us last year to say basically that the family campaign that I'd brought together to try and get justice for Ricky um, was being surveilled by the undercover police. We, all the time we were campaigning to get more police to investigate the loss of Ricky, actually we had police in our team, but we never knew that. They were surveilling us, they were undercover police. And it's that sort of, this, that sort of behavior is just unacceptable. And the thing for me was that we've now got the inquiry going in into the surveillance, the spy cops issues on, and we're presenting evidence to that. And before that inquiry is even reported, this legislation is brought forward. So it's unacceptable. So I, I said to the whip, I wrote to the chief whip on both occasions. I said that for me, this is a matter of conscience. I can't vote for this. Uh, I think the bills are unamendable uh, and I'll vote against. Now, Keir and um, our friend Bencher's position was they'll seek to amend the bills and then they'll see if they can get amendments through that will ameliorate them or mitigate them or make them more effective in some ways in terms of accountability and then see whether or not they vote for or against them at third reading. We'll see. I, I think the bills are unamendable. And if it is part of a grubby exercise by Johnson and Cummings to try and somehow put um, Keir on his mark on these issues, I think that's unfortunate because these, this is serious matters we're dealing with here. And I don't think that sort of party politics like that should come into it. As I say, matters of conscience, we should have a free vote across the house. Just speaking more broadly on sort of Labour and patriotism, it is kind of patriotism at the minute seems to be so tightly bound up with Brexit, which is such a big problem area for, for Labour that, you know, it is interesting that this legislation has come about in such short order when it wasn't entirely clear what the desperate rush was. So No, I, there's no reason for the timing. It's like, you mentioned the court case, but to be honest, there's, a, there's as I say, we've got the inquiry going on into the... the undercover operations that have taken place. And we haven't learned any of the lessons from that. And on the covert operations thing, there needed to be, uh, the overseas operations activity, there needed to be a lot more discussion around the parameters of that legislation. And there may well have been people that were, could come to some agreement on it, but none of that seemed to have taken place. On the covert operations, and remember it was, um, We've, we've had a number of cases like the McDonald's um, campaign women and we've had a number of, you know, we've had the Lambert case where you've had a, an undercover police officer living with a woman, they have a child together and then he disappears completely and only yesterday, um, this week was compensated, the, the son was compensated for the way he was treated. That, that can't, the way, 
that that cannot be right. That cannot be sanctioned in any form. And if if you remember in the debate, what people were asking for was saying basically we've got to exclude murder, rape effectively, and torture from this legislation. But the government wouldn't even do that. So the bill wasn't supportable at all. John, it, it sounds to me that actually that the no matter what um, amendments are put by Labour, the government is not going to adopt most of them. They might tweak it a bit. There's been talk from James Brokenshaw about amending a little bit of it to make the ISC slightly happier. But at the end of the day, it sounds as though Labour's not going to get what the front bench wants. Now, given that I, I've been told that actually it's almost certain that, that the party will then abstain. If it abstains on third reading, what do you think that says about the way Starmer approaches this kind of thing? I just think I just think it's a mistake. I just think it's a mistake. On issues like this, as I say, they are matters of conscience. They are dealing with life and death in some instances, and certainly in terms of extreme emotional and physical harm that could take place as well. I think actually you do have to take a decision and you have to stand up on, on these ones. If 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 the Labour front bench doesn't do that, that, that's a matter for them. But I've made it clear I won't vote for this legislation. And I can't see how it could be amended to make it in any way effective in, in those terms. I, I do not see how we can sanction um, state agents, whether they be military police or others or undercover agents, to perpetrate murder, rape or torture in our names. And if you look at legislation and controls like this that have gone through other countries, Canada, US and elsewhere, those sorts of elements are excluded. So um, I just can't see what amendment could enable Labour to vote for this legislation. And therefore, if you can't vote for it and it is so serious, you just have to vote against. People will make their own minds up on this. And as I say, it's, it's one of those deeply held matters of conscience. I've been in Parliament now 20 odd years. And I've been there when we've decided, when the parliament has decided to go to war or not, or send troops to Afghanistan, issues like that. And on all of those matters, I've always argued where there's issues like this of life and death. Um, you, you have to give MPs the ability beyond party discipline or anything like that to, to come to a view. And I think that's what should happen on this occasion. Right. On that, we must move on. Fascinating. Covered loads there. But uh, now's the real fun. It's time for the quiz. <laughs> uh, I mean, so, before, you, before you do that you were talking about culture and sex I didn't realise all, all through lockdown I thought this is my ideal opportunity to do what I've wanted to do for years is learn the trombone right? Oh, right. <laughs> oh my god oh my god this is fantastic John's just reaching for his trombone because you won't this be is, able to see this, this is it's a not scoop. fantastic this is a, it's not, oh my god this is a hell of a scoop what are you going to play John or you can I tell us afterwards well this is the problem I'm useless <laughs> Because the guy who was, hang on, the guy who was um, teaching me has gone sick. <laughs> not been very well. Not COVID, other matters. So I haven't had any lessons for months. And I thought the one thing I could do in lockdown is crack on and learn the trombone. And I'm, I'm useless. Anyway, we'll get there. Come on, that's brilliant. I thought you were going to play us a tune. Come on, play us a tune. Uh, if I could, I would. But it's, I would spare your ears. <laughs> the quiz. Right, right yes, quiz. okay, very well, it's the quiz. Uh, and following the news that Donald Trump has coronavirus, this week's is all about world leaders and what they said about COVID. So I'm going to give you a quote and ask you which world leader said it. Oh, God, yeah. So uh, just shout the answer if you know it. Which world leader described a visit to a hospital by revealing, I shook hands with everybody? Boris Johnson. Yes. It was, Rachel. Boris, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. God, can you remember that? I can remember that. And I thought I just, you held my head in my hands when he did that, you know. <laughs> He's my next door neighbour in constituencies. I know. You should have seen Chris Whitty's face when he said it. I was there. Yeah, Chris, I, oh, yeah. Chris Whitty's eyebrows went through the roof. <laughs> we know. We, uh, I was, okay. no, <laughs> Which world leader described COVID as a little flu? Trump. No. Ooh, was no, it President Bolsonaro, Xi? was it? It was Bolsonaro. Well done, John. Oh, very good. Very for good. you. Yeah. So Rachel and John currently on one each. Paul on Nout. Uh, which world leader said COVID was going to disappear? One day it's like a miracle. It oh, will that disappear. Is Trump. That is yes, Trump. well done, John. Yeah. 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 
Uh, and now he's got it, of course. Um, which world leader said of COVID, this is a tough one. There shouldn't be any panic. You just have to work, especially now in a village. Tractors will cure everyone. The field heals everyone. Oh, is that President Xi? It's not China. No, um, no. It's Eastern Putin? European. Putin? Yeah. yeah. Not Putin. No, uh, it's Eastern European, wasn't it? How about a Polish guy? A, was it a Polish president? No. Close. Oh. I think. I can't Ooh. remember his name. Czech Republic? I'll take the country, but as, only if you're not just going through all the East European countries. <laughs> we will be, though. We will, we will. Go on, tell us. Go on. It was the Belarusian leader, Alexander ah. Lukashenko, who oh, used okay. to yeah. be yeah. he used to yeah. be in charge of Soviet farm collectives. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he also suggested people should wash their hands with vodka and drink a shot of the spirit <laughs> every day, uh, but not at, not at work, he specified. <laughs> Oh, he's missing the tractor count. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this oh, week. Thank you so much. So, John, we the quiz. John won what? the quiz, yeah. Oh, sorry, it yes. Uh, of course, yes. John, you've won the quiz. Congratulations. <laughs> you said at the start, you said at the yeah. start you weren't, you weren't good, at, good on a pub quiz scene, but maybe next time at a pub quiz I'll give you a call, John. No, I'm always the one that I was the, always the one that gets last picked on the pub quiz teams because I can never remember in time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're fast, fastest voice first there, uh, but unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels, and please be sure to leave a review. Please also check out Running Mate, our fantastic podcast on the U.S. elections, which is aimed at Brits and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. Uh, we'll just leave you with what was perhaps a Freudian slip from Liz Truss as she tried to defend her policy on food standards and trade deals. As I've said, of course, in any trade deal we strike, we will be taking into account our high standards to make sure our farmers are undermined.